0: Hello, I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and this is New Books and Caribbean Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. If you like this podcast, please download, like, tweet, retweet, and all that good stuff. It's really much appreciated by all of us. My guest today is Megan Raby. She's the author of American Tropics, Caribbean Roots of Biodiversity Science, published by UNC Press in 2017. This book takes us to biological research stations in Costa Rica, Panama, Cuba, and Guyana, where U.S. scientists conducted research on local species and through which the concepts of biodiversity emerged. Raby argues that these concepts must be understood as connected to imperial practices, including the exclusion of local scientists and forced relocations in order to produce wilderness. This is a fascinating story and a timely intervention in debates about the production of knowledge. Here's our conversation. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks. Um, I'm a
1: big fan of the Nubex Network, so it's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Uh, So, okay, let's just jump in. This is a book about tropical biology and the concept of biodiversity as an outcome more connected to Caribbean research than had been previously thought. And I'm really curious as to how you got interested in the subject.
1: Yeah, well, it is a long and circuitous route, as these things sometimes happen. Um, You know, uh, I guess I'll go way back in that, um, you know, I was originally trained in my undergraduate studies as a a scientist. I went out to Montana. Sure, I was going to become a paleontologist. Uh, I was interested in field work at that time and evolutionary questions. And I did not expect to become a historian, although looking back, I guess I was always interested in history, um, uh, in the history of science. I just didn't know that it was, that it was a discipline. And so when I uh, uh took classes in the humanities as an undergraduate student and discovered that um, history actually included science, that science was a part of society and culture, and that uh, perhaps you could get a job in that field, <laughs> perhaps. Um, I decided to, you know, kind of, I was seduced by the dark side of the humanities and I switched over, um, uh, ended up doing an MA in history there just to be sure that I was... Really, this was a big change for me um, and uh, made that move. Um, so I, I was interested in field work and in place and in the in those general questions. And, and you know, it wasn't just me in the 90s and early 2000s. Historians of science um, were interested, uh, especially in place and how knowledge is produced in particular places, embedded in the politics of particular sites of knowledge production and how this local knowledge travels and becomes universal. Um, um, And in fact, I did an MA project on a totally different time and place, but focused on the similar problems to what I ended up working on in my um, dissertation, which is the project that this book eventually grew out of. So I actually got into this specific topic much uh, more accidentally. Um, uh, uh, I admit to being a kind of, interloper or a blunderer into um, Caribbean history. I came at it um, partly because I was uh, frustrated by the U.S. being left out of larger discussions of science and empire, um, uh, and partly because tropical field stations presented such an interesting and complex um, problems in in these questions about place politics, knowledge production, and in searching around for a dissertation topic, taking probably far too long to settle on one. Um, I ran across mention of Harvard's field station in Cuba uh, in Stuart McCook's book, um, States of Nature. And when I did a little more research and found out that it had been actually run by the same person, Thomas Barber, who directed the field station at Barrow, Colorado Island in Panama in the early 20th century as well, I knew there was a bigger story, a bigger network of sites of science, and I became interested in that and why they hadn't been really looked at closely by historians of science previously. So um, that, I would say, is the long version (laughs) or the basic outlines of how I got to it. Um, And actually, I was
0: really glad to to read the stuff about the Soledad and the Atkins Cuba station, because that's often um, sort of studied just on a sort of Cuban terms, but it was really interesting mm-hmm. to see it put in a much broader context. And that actually uh, brings me to my next question, which yes. is um, that the book uh, brings together history of science, Caribbean history and U.S. history. And I'm wondering if you can um, uh, tell us what kind of in- in- intervention you can make by bringing all of those together.
1: Well, I hope I've done that <laughs> successfully. I definitely am grounded it was grounded initially as, as a historian of science. Um, and basically, uh, I, I came, became fascinated by Caribbean history. I feel like, uh, Caribbean historians, um, are in a lot of ways, much farther ahead of, or we're, you know, we're much farther ahead of historians of science and thinking about, um, uh, 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 material and cultural circulations across a heterogeneous kind of region, you know, um, uh, and, you know, the, some of the interventions I hope to make by combining these different disciplines is to, uh, to basically broaden, first of all, the history of science and empire to really fully include um, U.S. science Um, it's been for a long time focused, especially on European empires and not fully really including U.S. science. And when it does, it it has included, focused mainly on agriculture and medicine um, and not on uh, sciences that have less obvious kind of applications to colonial power and yet are no less um, dependent upon and integrated into um, imperial colonial interests. So Um, So that's one of the interventions I I tried to make. Um, I suppose the other is that I think that these sites are fascinating places to understand um, how politics and specific environmental contexts and spaces um, really shape uh, scientific practices and scientific ideas more broadly. Um, And I can get into that more, but maybe I'll stop there for now.
0: Sure. Thank you. I think... um... Actually to get more specific now, you yeah. chose to frame it through particular biological stations. So there's the Panama Station, Cuba, Costa Rica, and Guyana comes in as well. How did you choose to write about those particular stations?
1: Yeah, um I you know, I, I chose them because they they are basically the uh, stations that focused on basic biology. As defined by the people who worked there, and um, ecological questions during the first half of the 20th century. Um, there were many other types of field stations, uh, agricultural experiment stations, which the uh, Soledad Station um, started off as. Uh, there are medical um, kind of sites, um, but you know, and and botanical gardens. But there was a specific movement. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, in uh, starting in botany in the emerging field of ecology, uh, for uh, field stations to study the relationship between organisms and their environment. And the first stations that um, U.S. scientists set up to study organisms in their environment uh, as a basic question an ecological question in the 20th century were in the, uh, at the stations that I study, So, um, uh, the sample size is basically hundred percent, right? So, or, you know, I, I looked at the stations that existed there. That's, um, I, I didn't really choose, maybe it was a foolhardy thing to do. Um, cause it took me to so many different places. Um, uh, but, uh, but that's how I chose the sites that I, I chose. And I, and I do kind of follow through them in, in, um, as they emerge and, and sometimes disappear. Uh, the, the few that last to the present are, you know, uh, as biological stations uh, are really the ones in Panama and Costa Rica.
0: So the concept of biodiversity is at the center of the book. And one of your aims, I think, is to historicize and demonstrate the roots of biodiversity science and scientific work in the Caribbean. So for those of us who are less scientifically oriented and less well trained, oh. uh, can you tell us, um, or talk a little bit about how tropicality and biodiversity are related? Because I think that that's, uh, one of what's at the heart of your book in some ways.
1: Yes. Yes. I think that's important. Um, so first of all, you know, a lot of different scholars, scientists, some historians, a lot of philosophers have talked about, um uh, biodiversity as an idea and as, um, as a, a concern in conservation science. Um, but they usually tend to start with its coining as a term in 1986 and haven't really looked at the deeper, deeper history of it. Um, except in broad brush kind of ways. So, you know, you can think about the diversity of life going back to Aristotle, but when after having done a dissertation that really was much more institutional and really went more station by station than the book does. Right. Um, and realizing that I needed to, in revising, to make the book, um, have a more throughgoing narrative and uh, not to lose the institutional side, which is incredibly important, but to do better to weave together the institutional, political, intellectual. Um, you know, I, uh, I decided to put diversity and the idea of biodiversity at the core. And having written that um, dissertation, Um, I looked again at the idea of biodiversity and at that National Forum on Biodiversity in 1986, in which the term was first used. And I realized that, you know, most of the organizers um, were actually tropical biologists and that I could trace their genealogy back to these sites that I had studied previously. So that's what made me focus on biodiversity um, uh, in the book, where it's sort of just on the edges of the dissertation. It's a long way of getting at your question about tropicality and biodiversity, but I just wanted to explain why or how I ended up making that the center of the narrative. Um, uh, So, you know, as I see it, the connection between uh, biodiversity uh, and tropicality, I think it's important to see the, the both scientists discussion of the diversity of life in the tropics as embedded in the broader uh, ideas about the, the diversity, the, Fecundity—a kind of um, uh, of the tropics—as seen in broader culture, um, uh, in the studies of ideas of tropicality that come out from cultural historians and geographers, um, uh, to see scientist discourses about the tropics as part of that, and at the same time as um, not just simply subsumed into the, those broader cultural ideas, but also as being involved in their own um kind of sub-discourse that is connected to their professional concerns, their intellectual kind of ambitions um, uh, throughout the period that I look at. And also embedded in their kind of uh, work in place, in which they um, are not only embedded in their broader uh, cultural ideas that they bring with them as outsiders to the tropics, but um but also in confronting um nature through their field work in these particular sites. Um, Maybe we can talk more about this too. If you have uh, more question about the, this, I, I've kind of gone off. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I was just trying to um, think through y- your answer. It gets yeah, it gets very complicated. So, but I want to talk about the scientists actually also, and um, the, the the appeal to them in particular about going to the tropics and the ways that I mean, one of the things that yeah. I think that you're arguing is that. These stations emerged because um, the the state itself thought it was important to have them, and scientists thought it was important to have them, but for slightly different reasons and working on slightly different agendas, right? So for the state, it was a sort of question of health and commerce, um, but for the scientists, it seems like it was something altogether different. So how did that work with the with the kind of ill fitting, yeah. but but equally kind of purposeful agendas?
1: Yes. So they tried, these scientists um, tried different strategies at different times. And that's one of the interesting things about looking at these different sites in the different periods that they emerge. You know, uh, they have their, they have their own professional and intellectual concerns that in some cases they're trying to protect under the banner of, say, pure science or basic science, as in the case of the first um, tropical field station uh, started by Americans, um that I talk about in the first chapter of the book, uh, the Sincona station uh, in uh, the Blue Mountains of Jamaica, um, which is actually kind of borrowing a, a British colonial uh, institution, a, a botanical garden that was uh, already there and kind of renting it and using it for uh, US science. Um, and they, you know, they did not want to – well, they didn't conceive, first of all, of having it be sponsored by the U.S. government. The U.S. government didn't much fund um, that sort of science at that time. But they um, uh, they did argue that they needed something that was um, focused specifically on pure, uh, pure science that wasn't focused on producing new um, agricultural commodities, for example. Well, that didn't work all that well for them. <laughs> they had a hard time getting funding for that. They tried uh, – Going by subscription and having uh, a lot of different um, scientific organizations, the New York Botanical Garden, other botanical gardens and museums, kind of chip in and fund fund this site for U.S. visitors uh, in Jamaica. But um, it was difficult institutionally to support, um, and so more successful were the stations that were started uh, in uh, the the 20s basically the, the the most important one would be the station at barro colorado island in the panama canal zone at the time uh, in fact an island right in the middle of the panama canal created by the flooding um, of the canal uh, and uh in that case it was still conceived of as a site for basic science they weren't going to plant economic uh you know uh, an economic botanical garden for example there uh um or do um, uh, the kind of research that, say, Soledad was initially started for. But um, they wanted uh, a, a, what they conceived of as an untouched remnant of tropical nature there, the, the rainforest that was on this island. Um, uh, but they did make an argument that understanding um, basic ecology and biology of tropical life was, um, would be important for the broader goals of uh, US, the U.S. government, U.S. government agencies, corporations, um, both by understanding the complex uh, relationship between plants, animals, and their environment and uh, in the, the tropical regions, but also um, by building up uh, a kind of um, contingent of biologists who had some tropical experience who could go on to work for the USDA or for the United Fruit Company, right, and uh, have some tropical experience. Um, so they made a variety of different kinds of arguments that um, that basic research in the tropics um, could be in the U.S. national interest. And in, by that means, um, they uh, managed to get, uh, you know, a variety of kind of Funding, land, um, things like that, in order to allow these stations to go on. So it's not a; um, they're not working directly for the for the U.S. government, but they are making an argument that um, that their uh, expertise uh, could be a potential use, um, and that this is something that's worth supporting um, for those broader
0: aims. So one thing that you make very clear, and that's it's pretty ironic given all of the sort of quest for knowledge that you just described, is mm-hmm. that there were a lot of missed opportunities mm-hmm. to include and collaborate with Latin American scientists yes. who presumably knew a lot about the tropics, yes. right? <laughs> um, so um, how did that happen? Why was that? And and maybe, uh, were there any exceptions at all? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I mean, there were exceptions. Um, the What I'd say is that, um, first of all, I, I just want to signpost before, Getting into the history of this, this is one of the things that came out of this project that I think is especially relevant for the present, and that I is one of the reasons why I hope that um, scientists also read this book. Um, is that is that the disparities in participation in, in tropical ecology, tropical biology, you know, still exist today. Um, the sites that continue at like Barrow, Colorado Island, now run by the Smithsonian in, in Panama, uh, and the Organization for Tropical Studies in Costa Rica. Um, they have a lot of participation by Latin Americans now, but still um, they retain a lot of character of uh, being U.S. institutions and uh, the legacy of the history that I talk about. So I just want to kind of signpost that for a second. But, um, you know, the part of the reason why these stations tended to be more like enclaves and tended to exclude Latin American scientists, um, it, it partly has to do with their character as, uh, stations and their focus on basic research. So, as stations, um, the one of the benefits uh, with a lot of drawbacks that you just signposted um, of a station that was advertised is that is that um, this is for visitors from afar. They can come to a place without having to make the local connections that make uh, organizing. Uh, long distance or in particular tropical travel, uh, so difficult and expensive, um, right? At a tropical station, from a U.S. visitor's perspective, you don't need to uh, hire local laborers. There are local laborers at each of these sites uh, who not only, uh, you know, uh, take care of the grounds and cook and clean for a person, but would do uh, take care of uh, experiments, collect animals and plants, and often also had uh, continuous knowledge of the site and could uh, uh, orient um, foreign visitors to uh, uh, what the animals and plants they were seeing actually were um, changes of the seasons, um, uh, things like this. So, uh, So because of the kind of labor and physical structure of these sites, um, that partly fed into the fact that a lot of the, uh, visiting researchers had no need to, um, actually get to know the, the local people, um, uh, in order to, to be there. And this was actually seen as kind of a, a benefit, right? You can get right down to work. This has to do partly with their conception of nature as separate from people. Um, and often in conceiving these sites as actually wilderness sites, um, Right. Despite the fact that, say, Barrow, Colorado Island was right in the middle of the Panama Canal and was, in a sense, an artificial island because it was, uh, uh, became an island after being a hill uh, when the, the canal was flooded. So, um, so it partly has to do with the institutional labor physical structure of these sites. It partly has to do with the conception that these sites are for getting um, U.S. scientists in touch with nature uh, uh, that they're at some distance from Latin American cities where most of the Latin American scientists would be located. Um, that's not to say that there weren't accessions as you brought up. And in fact, Thomas Barber, the, the, um, the scientists who directed during the twenties, thirties and forties, both the Soledad station in Cuba and Barrow, Colorado Island in Panama. Um, you know, he spoke Spanish very well. He was very comfortable uh, in the Society of Latin American Scientists. He uh, worked closely with a lot of different Cuban scientists, um, but that kind of, and and throughout his career, uh, and but that didn't necessarily filter down to the much larger numbers of scientists who would visit these sites for a shorter period of time, you know, a few weeks, maybe a month, um, uh, and who didn't necessarily um, uh, become integrated into, uh, didn't become acquainted with uh, the society of Latin American scientists who were there. Now, also these different contexts, The Caribbean is so complicated, right? Each each country has its own um, unique scientific community. Um, In Cuba, there is a very well-established community of natural historians, and in, and in that case, there was uh, the possibility for a bit more um, collaboration. Um, uh, in Panama, is much less so. You know, the centers of science were had been more uh, in Colombia. Um, uh, so it's different in each context. Of course, in the Jamaican case, it's more connected to British colonial science. So each case is very different, which is what fascinated me, but which also made this topic so difficult. <laughs> um I think that that covers many of the aspects of what you asked about there.
0: Yeah, I loved uh, hearing or uh, reading, actually, about life on the stations, and there are some really wonderful descriptions of it, including an intriguing mentions, and I wish there were more, but I, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was because of lack of sources of the people who were actually collecting the yeah. samples and had all this knowledge and and doing all of that work. So um, how much of that was... A surprise to you. How much of the of the way of the descriptions of the sort of scientists trotting in and out and, and all of that kind of stuff, were you surprised by that at all? Or were you kind of expecting that?
1: Oh, was I expecting there to be local Latin American, Caribbean?
0: Um... No, mostly just, I, I'm just wondering about like your descriptions of these kind of uh, scientists showing up for a couple of days and then leaving and that whole kind of I don't know, networky kind of yeah. <laughs> scene.
1: Yeah, that's part of the things that fascinated me about it because um, uh, once you talk to scientists who work in these sites now, you realize that they went there because, say, they had an advisor or a colleague who went there, and that person had there's – a, there's a real um, uh, genealogy or network, really, of people visiting these sites that goes back to the period of time that I, I talk about here up to the present. Um, and yeah, definitely early on, one of the I, the ideas about, you know, ironically, these field stations allowed, one of the, the most important, I think, um, aspects of knowledge production at these field stations is that they allowed for long-term knowledge. They allowed for understanding changes of seasons in in uh, environments that uh wrongly were assumed to have no seasons the tropics was assumed to be consistently um you know without seasons well once you work there for a while you realize that there's different different types of seasons that uh, there may be no winter but there's changes in in moisture for example things like this so so there's that kind of long-term knowledge also long-term environmental change there were tropics was seen uh in a general way um if you go back to say Alpha Brussels Wallace or something like this, there's there's an idea that the tropics are the most most ancient environments in the world, especially tropical rainforests. They one idea was that uh they were so diverse in life, um, there were so many different various forms of life there, because uh it was undisturbed and had been basically the same. There was no glaciation, so therefore it had just been the same and it was unchanging over time. Well, working at these stations they saw change. They Partly, this is because they were part. They were working there during periods of time in which is uh, in which uh, there's a massive amount of environmental change due to economic development and things like this. So uh, they're part of the environmental changes that are going on around them. Um, so being in these sites um, uh, over a long period of time allowed them to to eventually, as a group, see the tropics as a much more heterogeneous region to understand that it's not, you know, can't really be encapsulated by just the rainforest um, and that there's change over time at various scales. But that doesn't mean, um, but, but ironically, stations also at the same time enable these visitors to come and then go. <laughs> right. And the people who were really, uh, it it, it began to interest me quite a lot. And I also wish I had been able to, uh, research more on this. I think focusing in on one site, and I hope somebody does this, maybe allow allow you to, to uh, uncover this more. But the the continuity of the workforce at these sites helped is one way that helped to kind of continue the continuity of knowledge over time. Um, because it's not the scientists who stayed for stayed for years, and um, you know it was it was actually um, the workers. So. Um, uh, so there's that. There, there's this kind of double-edged thing. As, as, a, as a community of scientists, they begin to understand this place in a, over a longer period of time. That many of the early visitors do not necessarily stay for a long time, or they might come uh, once a year. Uh, Frank Chapman, for example, the ornithologist who was very responsible for popularizing, writing a lot of popular books about uh, nature at Barrel Colorado Island, telling stories about the wildlife and creatures there, and actually... Uh, basically the first person to use uh, camera trapping flash photography uh, in which animals kind of capture their own image that is so kind of popular now and seen to be a recent phenomenon. Actually, he did that in the twenties and thirties. He, uh, he would come, you know, once a year, Um, you know, you get, you don't necessarily um, see the full, you know, seasonal span if you, if you do that. You visit only in the in the dry season, for example. Um, so anyway, there, there's um, the nature of these institutions as as um, sites enabling visitors to come for short amounts of time, and yet for a large community uh, of outsiders to uh, to have some continuity over time um, is, is kind of an interesting, I don't know, double-edged sword about about these sites as sites of knowledge production.
0: I'm curious about the um, the concept of diversity and the way that you demonstrate that it didn't just kind of appear fully right. formed, but it, it was a product of debates and discussions. And you track some of those debates, um, especially in the latter part of the book about this yeah. idea of diversity. Um, and so I was wondering um, how, if you could just talk a little bit about how they played out and how, how the different contexts and different settings kind of shaped those debates as well.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that... Um is key is that there's there's a there's a major change um in the post-world war ii period so in in the ways that um tropical biologists as they come to see themselves think about uh the diversity of tropical nature and the diversity of life in general so in the first half of the 20th century the scientists who i look at um largely identify themselves with uh the naturalist tradition. They are um, studying organisms and their environment. They are uh, botanists or zoologists. Um, uh, They are thinking about organisms in all their complex relations um, with each other and with the physical environment. Uh, In the second half of the 20th century, after the, after World War II, um, you start to see uh, different approaches come in. Now, this is partly a broader phenomenon in the history of biology, um, but it's particularly interesting, I think, in the context of tropical field science. So uh, in in this period, you start to see uh, mathematical approaches, you start to see a systems ecology approach, you start to see people trying to uh, generalize about the phenomenon of diversity itself in terms of numbers of species and not necessarily thinking of diversity, the diversity of life in terms uh, primarily of uh, of the great variety of forms or the relationship between organisms uh, among organisms and um, and a diverse environment. So um, to get specific, uh, you see people like, uh, Howard Thomas Odom, like uh, Robert H. MacArthur, um, trying to uh, generalize uh, uh, about um, the phenomenon of the number of species and why it seems that there's a global pattern in which uh, there are more species in the tropics. Uh, there's a, a, a latitudinal pattern. Uh, Biodiversity gradient, as they call it today. So there's a there's a gradient, you know, a physical, uh, natural phenomenon in which there seem to be more species in uh, in the tropics than there are, say, in the uh, in the temperate zone or the Arctic. Right, uh, the number of species uh, in per area kind of increases in general um, toward the equator. They're trying to explain patterns of diversity like that. They're also trying to explain broad patterns of diversity like. Um, uh, the number of species on islands versus on continents. And this is this is an intellectual history that has been pretty well trodden by historians of science. And yet what struck me um, is that uh, even though these scientists all did field work, uh, extensive field work in the tropics and built on the studies of previous uh, tropical field workers who, who I discussed in the first half of the book, um, it, mostly that intellectual history was treated in a completely abstract way. So um, I think it's actually important um, to look at the, the field work they did in its institutional and its political context. The, the these scientists are getting to the sites that they worked at MacArthur because uh, there were already uh, U.S. field scientists uh, who had set up field stations, um, informal field stations in Costa Rica and, um, in in the 40s and by the 50s when he went there, um, uh, uh, partly because they could buy land in those sites. So it's the control of land in that case that allows um, scientists to visit. Um, Howard Odom, he uh, works, for example, not only uh, in Panama when he's in the military during World War II, but... Also, uh, later uh, in the 60s, uh, at a very interesting site uh, in uh, what is now known, now acknowledged as El Yunque Forest in Puerto Rico, um, uh, where he did a radioecology study. That is, he dosed a part of the uh, rainforest with uh, radiation and then studied the effects. Um, He's only able to do that because he can get funding. from the Atomic Energy Commission. He's able to travel to Puerto Rico more easily than to other uh, sites in the tropics. And he's, he's very explicit about this in his discussion for why he chooses the sites he chooses. So, so these researchers who have been treated, their ideas about, um, their ideas for systematizing and mathematizing um, uh, what we know today as biodiversity, or at that time they discussed as uh, species richness or species diversity, um, in, in their attempts to try to understand what could explain the patterns of diversity that they saw geographically uh, um, in different environments, um, their ability to formulate those theories, test those theories were very much embedded in particular contexts. They couldn't work on the sites they wanted to work on um, except for the fact that, uh, that they were enabled by essentially U.S. Um, U.S. institutions, U.S. control over land, U.S. power in the in the in the Caribbean region. That was a long answer to your question.
0: Um, so it, I've taken up lots of your time, but uh, it seems that towards the end, I just want to end with one yeah. last question. It seems sure. like towards the end of the book, um, you're headed in the direction of thinking about resonances mm-hmm. today, um, and you talk a little bit about sort of the status of biodiversity as a value and as something to sell or to be traded mm-hmm. you know, among corporations and states. So I wonder if you can, maybe we can end up by talking a little bit about that. Well, how should we, how should we take all of these things from your book and, and, and allow them to see us better? What's what's happening today?
1: Well, I think that that is uh, one of my reasons for wanting to, um, connect biodiversity to this deeper history of tropical research is because it, the, the valuation of biodiversity that we see today, um, you know, I think really has its roots in this period of time. The uh, it's maybe not a surprise that we see um, efforts to uh, uh, transform biodiversity into a commodity in order to save it. Uh, considering that actually um, the, the, value of studying uh tropical life was framed as being in in uh u.s and corporate interests in in the early 20th century there's there's a connection there and it's um made quite direct if you follow the institutions and the um the scientists um throughout this period of time so i think it's important to see that deeper history and not to see these things as a sudden new problem I also hope that maybe understanding this history can actually open up discussions among these scientists about how to be more inclusive in these sites that have long been so exclusive and how to open up tropical ecology so that it's, not, it's no longer, even though it was framed by outsiders, it can maybe uh, be less so uh, going into the future. Um, and that, that might be, be a place for some future actual positive movement as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for your book. And thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so
1: much. It's been, it's been just a a pleasure to talk to you.